as it is now, we're just going to focus on this idea of being clothed in gratitude. And in doing so, we will live the fullness of Christ. Verses 12 and 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy, beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now think about this for a second. There's a lot sort of chopped into that, a lot of these things. The theological essence of this text is that we have an identity. We as beings who are in Christ are what? We are chosen. We are set apart, holy. We are loved. We are the beloved. The beloved, that means that we are the ones who are loved. And in being this, this is rooted in the gospel. This is rooted in the work of Christ. We are not what? Holy, beloved, and chosen apart from Christ. So when we begin to think about the instruction that Paul gives here to this church, that we are to embrace, to receive, and then to apply to our own lives, not identically, but the instructions are clear. We can take it and say, that's written to me. Well, it's not written to me, but it's written for me. We need to not disconnect the fact that because we are in Christ, we now have this command. Because we have been found by God and his love, we now have this instruction. It also should make it clear in our minds that those who do not profess to be in Christ should not be hammered into being like this. There's something weird in evangelical in the evangelical world in my lifetime. It's anecdotal, I know, but there's something weird about how sometimes Christian groups can get all excited about trying to transform certain things in regard to the culture. And in doing so, they try to enforce biblical commands and ideologies on people who are like, I'm not even in the church. Now, while it might be fueled from a very good motivation, it might be somewhere in the heart of these groups to try to really help what does it do? Paul is talking to the chosen ones. He's talking to the holy ones. He's talking and instructing the beloved of Christ. So we as Christians need to receive this personally. Not to sit and think, oh, he's talking to someone else. No, he's talking to me. He's talking to you. He's instructing us. Put on these things. So what are we to put on? Well, First, we're to put on the lens to know that we are in Christ. The gospel message of grace, sovereign and free. We see this in other places. Paul tells the church of Ephesus in chapter 4, verse 32, he says what? Be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. So the essence of everything that we live out as believers is in response to the love of God who forgave us by commit, com, put, putting, condemning Jesus Christ in our place. Sometimes I lose the word I'm looking for. And we all know Galatians 5, 22 and 23, where the fruit of the spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Gentleness, self-control. And what does Paul say? Against these things, there is no law. So how do these virtues transform our lives? How is it that we are supposed to have 
compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. I mean, if I were to be honest, and many times in my life, and you too, it's like I'm bearing my I'm bearing all the time. <laughs> I'm tired of bearing. I'm ready to be free a little bit. So there's that conundrum. That being free in Christ, but we're to have a burden. But see, the difference is we forget what the scripture teaches us. Come unto me, all who labor and are weary, who are heavy laden. That means heavy stuff they're carrying around. I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is So we need to think about how to cultivate these things. How do we put on these things? Well, I think Paul prescribes the reality of how in these first two verses. We're going to put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, etc. And forgiveness because we have been forgiven. Because God in his infinite wisdom outside the very realm of reason and logic has not just chosen to love us, to put on compassion, to have kindness, to humble himself, to show meekness, and to have patience and bear with us. He did so at the cost of himself. Because keep in mind, beloved, that the gospel, the good report of Jesus Christ, is all about a judicial transaction, an issue of justice in the courts of righteousness. And that grace... Forgiveness can't come just because the judge was having a good day and felt kind. If you're guilty and the judge just feels kind and says you're not guilty, that's unjust. That is wicked. That is wrong. Now, it is, it is okay to have a reprieve or to have mercy and the sentencing be reduced. But even then, if you think about our Constitution... If you steal a pack of gum, they can't kill you for it. It's excessive. But if you take a life, they can surely take yours. Thank God we don't live in some other places in the world. Now, I know there are some states, but we'll leave that there. Because I don't want to get into that rabbit chase. But for God, justice has to be satisfied. So his kindness, his compassion, his humility, his meekness. Well, when has God ever been humble? He left glory and took on flesh. He lowered himself to be lower than the angels, Paul would say in the Hebrews. He gave himself up. He became nothing. He became a slave, obedient unto death on a cross. The God of the cosmos took on flesh, created a body for himself, and suffered in the place of his people. That is the centerpiece. That is the motivation. That is the point. We can have compassion when we remind ourselves of the compassion of Christ. How? What is it? What holds it all together? Verse 14 shows us this. This is what holds it all together. Above all these things, and I'm going to spend some time here. Above, above all these things, 
put on love. I'm going to stop. You have to think about this for a moment. Love, according to the Bible, is considered the greatest Christian virtue that can exist in a person. Now, what's a virtue? Virtue. A practice, a discipline, something that's obvious, a label, a moniker, things that you're known for, things that you put into practice, things that you exhibit. What are you known for? Theological fervor? Okay, good. If you don't have love, you're nothing. This is the this is the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. These people were heady, haughty, happy, all kind of crazy stuff. They 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 had a lot of things going on in Corinth. Some of them were very gifted. Some of them could speak languages. Some of them had all sorts of spiritual gifts. And they were doing all sorts of things. But Paul says, listen, it doesn't matter if you have all knowledge. If you don't have love, you're worthless. It doesn't matter if you have all skills and all gifts and all administration and all wisdom and all everything. That you can build the world with your word and you can save a multitude with your hand. You are nothing if you have not love. It is better to perish together in the fires of persecution with love than to survive forever without it. It helps me. This is really good. We want boundaries. We want simplistic teaching. We want to know what we're really supposed to be about in this world as Christ followers. This is it. And until we get love, we should not go anywhere else and do anything else. Because anything else we do that is not fueled by the all supreme reality of our love, it is absolutely not of God, nor is it to his glory, nor is it to his name, nor can we thank God for it, for it is vain. Now that is hard. That's really hard. James Tippins doesn't like to hear that because there's a lot of stuff I've done and there's a lot of stuff that I like to do and there's a lot of things that I'd love to accomplish. And I can't lie to myself and think, well, that would be loving. It wouldn't be loving. It'd be self-serving. Let's be honest. Love isn't self-serving. By definition. The binding force of all these things is love. You cannot be kind if you are not loving. You cannot have compassion. Empathy. See, last week and the week before, one of these weeks, we really emphasized empathy. Fulfillment, contentment. Remember these things that we've been learning, beloved. These things cannot exist without love because first... We must know the love of God and embrace and receive and, and, and just let it drown us. And be reminded of these things. The renewal of our mind, being present, being embodied, being here in this world. Led by the Spirit. As beloved, chosen, holy ones who are not of this world. It's crazy, right? Love. It binds it all together. Why? Because it is the motivating force behind God. Now, I said this for the first time in public 
somewhere around 2009. It was a pivotal year for me. But God does love himself. But not in a way that loving ourselves feels. In the sense that he loves himself in the fact that he is worthy of love. And that in the love for his own glory and his own name, which is not hedonistic, because it's right, he chooses to display himself. That's his glory. His glory is revealed in his love for us. And he reveals the love in the word for his son, whom he gives for us. Now, see, that knocks away hundreds of years of of theology, of unwritten, well, it's been written, but it's not, let me put it this way. It knocks out hundreds of years of a mindset that tells us that we're nothing. You want to find your identity? Find your identity in knowing that God loves you and He gave Christ for you. So if He loves Himself and He loves His Son beyond measure, and He gave Himself and His Son for us, His beloved, there's something to embrace there. We have to go there. Paul doesn't start any letter with you knuckleheaded scoundrels, waste of breath. I mean, it's close. He gets there, but he never starts the letter. He never starts the letter there. To the saints, to the beloved, to the mm, tolerated, loving, adopted. Sometimes he says adopted just to remind them. You know, you were adopted, right? We can sell you off. No, just kidding. You can't because he then says nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the adoption. Nothing can make us not children ever. Not even us. We can't emancipate ourselves. That's great. 1 Corinthians 13, I've already said this, but to hear the text verbatim in the English. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Jesus in John chapter 13, which is just just two verses summarized in this way. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. And the new commandment is that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you are also to love one another. And when Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the other C's, they always press him about what's right, what theology is more pressing in the context of application. How would you handle this, Jesus? We're going to get him here. He thinks he's compassionate to watch. If he does it right, according to our standards, the people are going to see he's just like us. If he does it wrong, we're going to stone him or arrest him because he's a blasphemer. <laughs> and I don't know if in law school you studied the words of Christ or the writings of Paul, but sometimes those things are lockstep. I would love to see a great mind squeak out of those arguments that Jesus gives. He's like, <laughs> you can't. Sure, 
Law says killer. So whoever is innocent of any sin, chuck it. Go ahead, execute justice. The greatest of all the laws is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. But equally of importance on the same ground in which you love the Lord your God is this law, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the laws of the prophets, all the laws of God rest on these two. And if that's the case, then what in the world are we doing trying to massage out all these other tertiary and whatnot ideas? Not even primary, not secondary, tertiary, third. Third or lower in the scale. Musical term for me. Why are we why are we spending so much time there? Why are we worried about whether it's godly to Celebrate Thanksgiving. It is absolutely godly to be thankful in any form, any way. If you want to stand on your head with a hula hoop on your feet and twirl around and say, thank you, Jesus, I love you, do it. Just film it, please. Church can start a little TikTok. We can monetize that thing. The binding force of all these virtues is love. Our ability to love is a direct result of understanding and accepting the love of Christ in the gospel. The gospel meaning what he's done. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, to love, not in the way the world's taught us, not in the way we've taught ourselves, but to love according to the gospel. To mature in a way that we begin to see the simplicity of grace, the simplicity of hope, simplicity of love. And we just live it out. And when we feel pressed to become so complex with it and try to live, try to try to try to, you know, put together disciplines and all these things, just rest for a minute, come to the assembly and confess the fact that, hey, you know what, I'm really struggling right now. You know what? Me too. Let's just walk in love. See, love is greater than knowledge. Love is greater than clarity. Love is greater than distinction. And I I have to say this. We don't get to say what is love when the Bible says what is love. And you can, we can, some can, I don't even want to put it on me or you. Some people can say, well, I'm just being loving when I keep it real. No, you're being nasty. That's not love. Paul has not said Compassion. You maggot. <laughs> you know. No. No compassion. For Christ has compassion for you. Forgive one another because you've been forgiven. Everything. How Christ died in your place. And what does this bring? What does this type of thankfulness do? It brings thankfulness. It embodies us in a place where we live presently, right now, in love. Not in this ethereal place in our brains or this this philosopher's realm. But in a real tangible, simple, ABC123 life. 
And God is glorified in that type of life. But yet it's the hardest thing to do. I don't know why. I know why, but I'm not going to get in it. I don't know why it can't be overcome. Why didn't God just do that? Because he receives the glory when we simply quit and rest. Verse 15. And let the peace of God, peace of Christ, rule in your hearts. To which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. See, the peace of Christ is a central theme of the gospel. I mean, even the cults got it right, right? Even the cults that knock on your door, send you letters in the mail that call, put stuff in your hands, handbills and whatnot when you're out in public. I mean, their catch, their, their approach is always, man, the world's a mess. We need some peace. You got that right. I need some peace in my own house. I need some peace in my own head. Right? Sometimes we mistake peace with a lack of stress, a lack of anxiety, a lack of problems, a lack of chaos. In the midst of chaos, there is order. In the midst of pain, there is hope. I think I read, yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 last week. Struck down, perplexed. In order to be thankful, we have to be at peace. In order to be at peace, we must recognize we have a reason to be thankful. Do not be anxious about anything, Paul tells the church of Philippi, chapter 4, verse 6. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In Romans 14, Paul says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Foundation, in my mind, of true thankfulness is peace. Because it is only there that we have the moment to take the breath in to go, thank you. I mean, I don't know what kind of catastrophes you've been. I don't know how, you know, if you've been in a car accident or if you've been around trauma or you've been in a situation where someone was hurt. And in that moment, you're not like, well, thank you, thank you, thank you. So glad this is happening. No, you're just dealing with it. If I fell off the stage today, passed out, I mean, well, thank God, pastor just broke his leg. Let's just go up there and check on him. Thank God for it. Thank God. Let me try it. That's silly. Nobody does that. It's, 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 it's ridiculous. But when the, when the matter is over, we can be thankful that God has a hand in it, even if it comes to a terrible end. Because we know and we can rest. We are not guaranteed a positive outcome of things in this life, but we are guaranteed an absolutely positive position for the life ever after. To share in the glory of God. To be thankful. We need to find peace in the gospel. And when we do that, we will nurture gratitude. Let me think about it. In the chaotic sense in which we live emotionally, physically, etc. To sit down and just verbalize 
gratitude requires a time of resolve. Even if it's just a small fleeting moment, just a tiny little spot, just a little pause to go, even if it's, thank you, God, that you have this. <laughs> yeah, it's a big sigh. It's just a sigh. And then all heck breaks loose the next second. But imagine when that is nurtured because of the gospel, because of the focused attention that we can give to the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, all logical sense, all academic pursuit, all cognitive function. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. That's what it's about. That means when we find everything else unruly ruling our hearts, we have to what? Remind ourselves of the binding force of Christ, which is the love of God for us. We have to get into the habit and the discipline of being honest with ourselves. You're not, we are not pretending. We are, well, we are pretending. We are not, what am I trying to say? We're not tricking God. Looking for a more polished way to say that, but we're not pulling one over on him. He knows us. He knows when we posture and go, yeah, I'm just so glad. Thank you, Father. Just that peace that we're not at peace. He knows our innermost being. He knows our subconscious and our unconscious thoughts. God knows everything about us and has known everything about us with all knowledge for eternity, at the same time, all the time, everywhere. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What's, what's that look like? <laughs> I don't know. It's different every moment, isn't it? But the source never changes. The source never changes. And that verse 15, look at that for a minute. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were indeed called in one body. So we go back to this idea that there is a mandatory element of God's promises or the means of grace, as we like to say here as a people. Where God exercises his mercy through natural means like prayer, like meditation, like reading the Bible, like being in the assembly. And that reminder that we are one body with many parts. And I am so, so sorry that I didn't get the full function of this picture 20 years ago before you all, well, most of you knew me. But by the mercy of the Lord in the years to come, we will parse this stuff out biblically rather than culturally. We're not alone. We are the body of Christ. See, when I said one body, most of us are like, yeah, we're the church family. Church family, spiritual family. Yeah. Okay, that's true, but that's temporal in this earth. <laughs> Marriage is temporal as a reflective picture of that eternal state. 
We're one body. And it's got nothing to do with the us. We're one with Christ. It's not the church and Christ. We're one with Christ as husband and wife become one. It's a picture. It's only a picture. So we can't scoff at being one body. Because when we do, we're scoffing at Christ himself. We can't say, well, I don't have to love these people because they're not me. They're not my people. They are us and they are our people because they are Christ's body. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that she might be without blemish or spot or wrinkle to be presented holy, beloved, chosen, blameless. Why and how? Through his compassion, through his kindness, through his humility, through his meekness, through his patience, through his bearing of her sin on the cross in his innocence. Husbands, love your wives as in that way, in every way. Give yourself up for her that you might show the picture of Christ. That's headship. Oh, crickets even stopped on that. And remember, it's just a picture. No one ever hated his own body. And there's a caveat out there. There's psychological conditions that cause us to hate our bodies. And psychological conditions. And there are rare cases where people are self-deprecating to the point that they deprive themselves from the natural means of life. But normally... We eat when we're hungry, we sleep when we're sleepy, and barring something psychological or physiological or biological, we take care of ourselves to some degree because we love to live. But it's not about our body. Our body is just a little temporary picture of it. It's not about us as a body of believers. It's about Christ and his body that was broken for us, that we may partake in the divine nature, sharing the glory of Christ, glorified to see. What does that mean? That means we are going to be prepared to be presented to the cosmos as God is revealed. We also shall be revealed. He will be seen in us. Our great father. It's so simple, but so crazy, so mysterious. What does that do? We're one body. And the latter part of that, and be thankful for that. Gosh, there's a sermon there. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And that's obvious, right? Worship and wisdom here in these verses, 16, verse 16. The wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, the, the, the word of God, the teaching of God. The word doctrine literally means something taught, okay? 
If I teach you a French phrase, that's doctrine. We've made the word doctrine become some spiritual term. It's just teaching. A list of teachings. Let the word of Christ, let the teaching of Christ, let the word of Christ. And there's so much more there. There's a spiritual sense in this. There's this there's this mysterious reality that we see in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. and The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And all that there is that exists came from the word. Jesus Christ is the living word. There's so much there. But in the simplistic way of learning what Christ is and who Christ is and what Christ did. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Yes, and it starts with the hearing of the word. It starts with the learning of the word. It starts in the living of the word. But more importantly, it's a constant reminder of the love of God. God is love and loving us through giving of his son so that we might be a people to partake in his righteousness. Not of our own doing and not of our own cognition, but he gives us the resting faith. To hope in him. And then we can learn. We can grow, we can be deceived, and we can be confused, and we can philosophize, and then all of a sudden we're all way back to heresy. And But God never fails, and his word will be true. And the means of knowledge, the means of understanding is the truth. You can't, if you understand something wrongly, it, it is a lie. So, beloved, I'm not, I'm not propagating the idea that we can just go out there and willy-nilly say anything, and anybody who says the name Jesus is a believer. Most of the time when the name is said, it's because somebody stubbed their toe or got pulled out in front of traffic. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. And here simply is the word as the written word, which in a funny way was not even complete then when, when this letter was written. But it was complete. It wasn't finished, but it was complete. The prophets attest to the gospel. Moses attests to the gospel. Jesus makes that clear. There is no way, in any way, that any generation has been without the gospel of grace. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing, and all wisdom, as well as singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. With thankfulness in your hearts to God. So see, we come right back to that thankfulness, to the gratitude, worship and wisdom and thankfulness, the centrality of the teachings of Jesus in the gospel. It's the fuel, it's the richness, it's the power in our lives to be reminded of the love of God, to be reminded of the grace of God, to be reminded of this gospel, of our place and position. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, tells them to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with their hearts. See, engaging the gospel through the scripture, and listen to this church, engaging the gospel through singing songs 
Whether we like them or not, or whether it's our style or not, or whether the words we rightly understand or not, when we engage the gospel in singing, we engage the gospel in hearing, we together do this in a way that establishes a more concrete presence, a more concrete resolve to be reminded of the grace and the love of God. And that in turn allows us to be thankful. One of the hymns that we sang this morning, there was a line in there, and I'm going, praise God, thank you God for that. Thank you, God, for that truth. And it wouldn't be a psalm. I mean, you know, some hymns, they're just not good writing music. You want some Shane and Shane or you want, you know, something. But the truth is powerful. I mean, I don't know too many people with, uh, you know, a mighty fortress when they're going on a trip. On repeat with a pipe organ. It might be fun to start out with the kids. Here's the playlist this nine hours. But it's, a, it's an awesome truth. Our God is a mighty fortress. Against which nothing can come. And when we focus on it, when we listen, when we're in the assembly, when we're together as the body of Christ, we grow in our understanding of the gospel in small ways by the Spirit. In verse 17, he refocuses this again as he closes it out. And he says, Whatever you do, whatever you do in word, whatever you do in deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And give thanks to God the Father through him. Now, this in and of itself is complex. Why? Because I've never met anyone in the faith who disagreed with this sentiment. But at the same time, I've never met anyone in the faith who did it. So ask ourselves, we should ask ourselves, do I do everything and everything I do, do I do it in the name of Christ with thanksgiving to God through him? See, when we ask that question and we impose upon ourselves a really culturally based or, 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 or culturally informed answer to that, it causes extremes, right? It causes extremes. It causes some of us to go, I'm done. I give up. I'm leaving the church. I'm leaving the faith. It's me and Jesus in a juicy juice. I'm not doing this anymore. They still make those anyway. <clears throat> or the other extreme. I'm cutting off my hair. I'm cutting off my arms. I'm going to beat myself in the morning and burn myself at night for the sake of Christ. I'm going to isolate myself and going to do everything. Matter of fact, I'm going to be homeless for Jesus. You know, and those extremes go in so many places. I'm going to destroy everything. Every idol, you know, thank Calvin for that sentiment. The heart is just a manufacturer of idols. He's not wrong. He's right. The Bible teaches us that. But we're not in the business of living in freedom by trying to turn off the idol machine. So what is this? How do we, how do we get to the place where we're 
doing everything in word, everything we say. And some people think that means that everything we say has got to be theological. Nope. Most theological discussion is not to the glory of God. Depends on the context and the people saying it and what's being said. Some people say, well, that means we got to do, we got to constantly read just the verbatim Bible. Don't say another word. No commentary, no application, no vernacular changes, no nothing. Just read the Bible. Okay, but that's not how the Bible was read and applied in the first century when the people received the letters. They worked through them. They talked about them for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. You know, there was no verse by verse preaching in the New Testament church. It was letter by letter teaching. It was, let's talk about this letter. Let's read this letter. And then let's spend the next three to four hours together. Y'all hungry? We'll eat in a minute. Talking about it. How do we apply this? What difference does it make? And let's discuss it. Let's sing. Let's praise God. Let's hear, the, let's hear some of the Old Testament scripture that we've been able to obtain. This journey of faith. Beloved, we're never going to be in a place where we wake up one day and that entire day has been all for the glory of God. However, by faith it is. What does that mean? That means when we're resting in the sufficiency of Christ's humility, love, compassion, kindness, and peace. Everything we do in word and deed is for the glory of God. And it's also a reminder to keep in check that we're not being fleshly. And when we find ourselves fleshly, what is the response in our hearts? What is the response in our hearts when we find sin in our lives? Blatant, outright wickedness in our lives. Hate, hatefulness in our lives. Arrogance in our What are we supposed to think? What are we supposed to say? We're supposed to say, I am so glad that you're merciful, Father. And that your love for me endures forever. And God's love for us is seen perfectly and revealed only in the love in the, in the death of Christ. Now think about that for a second. I mean, Paul tells the people of Corinth, well, whatever you eat or drink. And we know what, we know how that Change, right? Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God in the name of Christ with thanksgiving. We just merge those two together. But whatever I say and do, whatever I think and want, that's first John. Whatever I eat and drink, come on. You gotta do it all for the Lord? Yeah. It's a state of mindfulness, it's a state of constant. Awareness that we are not our own, that, but we're not shackled under the bonds of law and rigidity and fear. Those have been broken by the blood of Christ. Those have been torn away by the flesh of Christ. We are free. And when our freedom carries us into things that are not glorifying to the Lord, we come back to thankfulness. We come back to the peace of Christ. We come back to the resting place. And we shouldn't make silly resolutions. Oh, Father, I will never lie again. You just did. 
Father, I will never say those things again. Now you're a liar. Father, I want you to take away all this stuff. I mean, how many times have you ever prayed for God to take away things? I've done that. Take away this. Take away. He takes the other stuff away. The things that I don't want to lose. This is not Christian living. Christian living is to stay in a place of peace, of hope. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now think about that. What is God's will for my life? To be thankful for his love and mercy. Not to be thankful that you've escaped judgment, though that's okay too. See, that is another problem. That is another extreme. Be thankful for his love and mercy, for his kindness, for his meekness. Be thankful for his perfect love. It's okay to be thankful for what we have escaped. But the Bible doesn't give that emphasis. That's a negative emphasis. That's a negative place that puts us in a constant state of either going to extremes or giving up. So living a life of thankfulness, living a life of gratitude is a response then of the transformative power of the gospel. What is the transformative power of the gospel? It changes our minds. It renews our minds. And in doing so, it changes our outlook. It changes our perception. It changes our reality. And when the reality is changed, then it changes our affections. And it changes our intentions. But we are never far from our, re, our, from our real disposition in the flesh that battles against the spiritual disposition given to us by God. And so then what do we do? We see the word of God and we see, is there anybody else in the Bible who had these issues? And the answer is yes, David had these issues. Moses had these issues. Jonah had these issues. Peter had these issues. And Paul had these issues. Paul wrote about these issues. Romans 6, 7. He's riding this tidal wave, typhoon, hurricane, tornado, twister, fire, sinkhole of this turmoil. Ah, you know the text. Why do I do what I don't want to do? I want to do what I want to do. Why do I want to do what I don't want to do? It's like a rap song. How am I going to escape this body of death? He answers it. And I'm going to impose the essence and the sentiment. It is God. It is God. It is God alone. In His merciful, righteous, just love. I said a few weeks ago about how hard it is sometimes when we see Paul write to the Thessalonians is keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. How do we do such a thing? By resting in the love of God. Knowing that nothing can separate us from it. Knowing 
that it is the power of God unto salvation. The love of God is the power of God unto salvation. Because the good report is the love of God manifested in justice. The gospel. The gospel is not a list of theological things. The gospel is a story of God himself saving his people. So, beloved, James chapter 1, what do I do now? How do I, how do I deal with this? You pray. You pray that God would help us understand the love of God. As one day Trey will get to in Ephesians over and over and over and over again. This love that all the saints know. That every name in heaven and earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, God may grant you to be strengthened with power. Through his spirit, inside your heart, mind, and soul. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. The word of Christ, joy of Christ, the peace of Christ. Through faith that you who are being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the other bodies who make the body of Christ, with all the other saints, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Isn't that a wonderful place to be? How do we do that? We have to wear this gospel. Gratitude. We have to be thankful. We have to focus. And we have to be real. When we take inventory, beloved, just be real. Tell yourself what is. But that includes telling yourself whose you are. Speaking in your own heart and mind and with your voice the gospel of grace. So as we take this table today, let's remember this. Let's remember the love of God and the death of Christ. Let's pray. I thank you, Father, for the great gift of your love. Teach us to be thankful. Teach us to be mindful. Teach us to be focused on who we are in Christ, to be satisfied, to be fulfilled in him. And I pray, Lord, that as... We look at the season of holidays and festivals that we would take full advantage of the opportunity to celebrate and be thankful. And most importantly, to speak into the lives of other of others, the peace that we have and the hope that we have, which is in the love of God alone. And we know your love through Christ Jesus and in his name we stand before you and pray all these things. Amen.